All right. So different in that we're not singing tonight and also different in that we're looking at Song of Solomon tonight, which is unlike any other book in the Bible. And so find the song. It's right after Ecclesiastes. It's right before Isaiah. Song of Solomon. Okay, let me remind you where we're at. We are in a section of books known as wisdom literature. Okay, the song falls into that category. And there are five books of the Bible that fall into the category of wisdom literature. And those books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And Job gives you reflective wisdom. So does Ecclesiastes. We've talked about those books. Uh, the book of Psalms is a book about wisdom for how to worship. And the book of Proverbs is instructive wisdom. And then Song of Solomon is marriage wisdom. And so if you look at these five books of the Bible, they cover, in the broad category of wisdom, they cover a lot of ground, right? Psalms tells you, here's wisdom in your relationship with God. Uh, the book of Proverbs gives you wisdom in tons of different areas of life, saying this is how life generally works. Not promises, not ironclad rules, but generally this is how you can expect things to work in life. Job and Ecclesiastes give you sort of the exception, not quite as easy to understand. You've got to step back and you've got to think about it, or you have to reflect on it to really understand what, what those books are teaching us. They give you uh, the counter examples to the book of Proverbs, and then fitting that God would give us a book in the Bible that gives us wisdom about marriage. So that's where we're headed tonight in the Song of Solomon. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the very beginning, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Um, textually, that could mean one of two things, where, where it says, which is Solomon's, uh, or according to Solomon. That could mean that Solomon wrote it, or that could mean, grammatically, that someone wrote it in honor of Solomon, or they wrote it because they learned these things from Solomon. But either way, Solomon is connected with the book, and uh, it's an interesting thing to think about Solomon and his connection to this book because when you read about Solomon in the Bible he starts off really good and he ends up really bad and so you look at this book and you say either he wrote it in the really good days before the really bad days or maybe there was a brief period of time at the end of the really bad days where he realized these were really bad days and bad decisions and I was on the right track to begin with and somewhere I went off base and Here's what I've learned, and maybe he, he wrote these things down at that time. But either way, Solomon is connected with the book. So we're going to jump in, and I'm going to be honest with you. Um, there's two issues, and they're serious, that Christians have with this book in the Bible. The first issue is this. It appears to be love poetry. And we'll talk about this more in a minute. Um, it appears to be, at times, very erotic love poetry. Not just like, you're my sweetheart, but serious love poetry. And so that is a problem for some people. And then the second problem is, in the book, there's no direct mention of God. You can jot down out beside that uh, song, eight, chapter 8, verse 6. In chapter 8, verse 6, there's a, uh, an allusion to God or a, a 
passing reference to God, but it's only using God sort of as a comparison. It's not directly saying anything theological or anything directly about God and his character, his nature. It's just sort of this passing reference. And so some people say, you know, it's, it's weird that this is love poetry and very, at times, graphic love poetry. And it's weird that God really doesn't seem to have anything to do with the book. And so people kind of wrestle with this. So, full disclosure, if you go back before the time of Jesus and you look at the Jewish community um, around the time of um, people coming back from exile, okay? If you're, if you're following the storyline of the Old Testament, you know that there were books being written up until and during the people are coming back from exile. And so at that point, they're putting the Old Testament together, so to speak. They're trying to recognize which books are inspired by God and belong in the canon of Scripture. And the one book that they debated more than any other book is the Song of Solomon. They debated a little bit the book of Esther only because God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But at the end of the day, they said it's clear God is on every page in Esther. He's behind the scenes pulling all the strings, putting everything in place. Clearly, he's involved. They debated the song because they said it seems like love poetry, one, and uh, it doesn't really seem to mention God. In the end, they put it in, right? There was really no group of Jews who said, well, we believe in all the books of the Bible except Song of Solomon. In the end, they did put it in. But I'm telling you, they debated it. They talked about it. And the same thing happened in the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther goes and he tacks the uh, 95 theses on the church door and Protestant Reformation explodes and the Protestants say one of the things they say is look all of these apocryphal books that the Catholic Church has accepted we don't believe are biblical books so I have Catholic family members if you've ever been to a Catholic Church and you open a Catholic Bible they got some extra stuff in there that we don't have and Luther and his buddies said look we don't, those are not biblical books. The Jews have never recognized those. The earliest Christians didn't recognize those. Get rid of those things. And they did also talk about the Song of Solomon. And they said, what do you think? Should it stay or should it go? Do we leave it in? Do we take it out? And in the end, they left it in. But again, I'm telling you that they, they debated it. So Jews and Christians both decided after debate, it belongs in the Bible, and Jews and Christians also have something in common when it comes to Song of Solomon. Is what uh, also in common is that um, they have interpreted it differently more than any other book that they've interpreted in the Bible. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe the only exception for Christians would be the Book of Revelation. You can find eight million interpretations of the Book of Revelation. You can find. Uh, 7,999,999 of the Song of Solomon, okay? You find people, and we're going to talk about some of them, you'll love them, that they're just crazy. And so all kinds of interpretations about the book. So historically, you need to know this. Historically, most interpreters have said, you need to interpret this book as an allegory, okay? An allegorical interpretation. The vast, vast majority of people who have tried to make sense of this book come down and say it's an allegory. And here's their thought pattern, okay? They read the book and they say, hmm, this seems like graphic love poems. That's strange. 
Not sure that belongs in the Bible. And then they come over here and they say, and it, it really doesn't talk about God. It really doesn't seem to have anything to do with God. That's strange. And so then their third landing point in light of those two things is to say, maybe it's really not a love poem. Maybe it's like disguised as a love poem, but it's really about something else. Okay? That's an allegory. Let me give you a couple of examples of allegory so you understand what I'm saying. Okay? Anybody know who that guy is? Anybody? No? Plato. There he is. If you guess Zeus, you were, you were in the right era, kind of. Okay? Plato. Plato told one of the most famous allegories ever. Okay? Philosophers love this story. Okay? So Plato teaching his people, and here's the story he tells. And you can see the picture here that kind of illustrates the story. He says, once upon a time, there were prisoners sitting in a dark cave, staring at a wall. Do you see them up there? Sitting on the bottom left, all in a row. And he said, these prisoners are chained to the wall. They cannot leave the cave. And all they can do is stare straight ahead at the, the wall in front of them, the blank wall. That's all they can do ever. And on the wall, they see shadows. That's all they know. They cannot look left or right. They're chained. They're stuck. They just watch these shadows all day long. And the shadows move and they do all this stuff. All these people know is the shadows. One day, somehow, a prisoner gets free. And he runs, starts leaving the cave. He just ditches all his buddies. He's leaving the cave, and he says, whoa, whoa, look at this. Right behind us, there are people with puppets. And there's a fire behind them, and, and the light comes in from the edge of the cave and the fire, and these puppets are throwing shadows up on the wall. And he looks down, and he sees his buddies, and he says, look, that's, we thought the shadows were real, but what's real is what's behind us, and we never could see it. And so he leaves the cave, and he looks out at the world. There's a sun, there's trees, there's all sorts of interesting things out there. And then he comes back into the cave, and he comes to his buddies, and he says, hey, guess what? I have figured out something really important. The shadows, the stuff, we thought that was reality. They're just shadows. Reality is behind you. Reality is there's people back there moving stuff around and there's a fire and you can leave the cave and you can do all this stuff. And his buddies look at him and say, you're an idiot. We see the shadows. How can you deny the shadows? They're right in front of us. Okay? It's an allegory. You understand that is not a story about people chained in a cave staring at shadows and one guy escapes. Okay? Everything in that story represents something in Plato's mind. The prisoners sitting down at the bottom are us, just ignorant, regular people. The guy who escapes the cave and runs out is not a guy who escapes out of a cave. He's a philosopher, right? The philosopher figures out the truth about reality and the truth about life. And then he comes back to the ignorant people like you and me and he says, ah, I figured it all out. Here's the meaning of life. And he philosophizes or whatever they do. And the people, like you and me, are, most of the time are too dumb to get it. And we just say, I don't understand that. All I see is shadows and that makes sense to me. Okay? It's an allegory. It's really not about people in a cave. It's about learning and knowledge and philosophy and trying to teach ignorant people 
about reality, okay? Here's some other examples. You ever heard of John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody read this book? I've started it. I'll be honest, I've never finished it. I think it's kind of boring, but I have started it. And it's an allegory. It's about a guy named, at the beginning, Pilgrim, and then he gets his name changed to Christian. And he meets all kinds of different people as he's traveling on this road uh, you can see all the towns he visits and the places. And every place and person he meets has a particular name. And it represents not a person or a place, but something that you face in life. So he meets a person named despair. Or he meets a person named loneliness. Or he visits a village called anger. Whatever. And it's an allegory. It's really not about a guy on a road. It's about you and the things that you experience in life, okay? Here's an allegory maybe you read in high school. Anybody read Animal Farm? You remember reading that? Okay, now I'm talking your language. You understand at this point that it's really not about walking, talking pigs, right? It's a book that is about uh, a revolution in Russia, and he's writing it about pigs so that he thinks nobody back home will figure out what he's writing about, and then he loses his head. So he writes an allegory to make his point, okay? So all these people, for years and years and years, centuries, say, Song of Songs, I know it looks like a love poem, but it's really not. It's really an allegory, and it represents other things, which begs the question, what does it represent? So here's some possible explanations, okay? One of the most common Jewish explanations is that it is really about the history of Israel. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 tribes to Egypt to the Exodus to coming out to wandering in the wilderness to uh, going in and fighting in Jericho to the period of the judges to Saul to David to Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Uh, rebellion in the kingdoms, exile, then they come back, they say, that's what the song is about. It's not a love poem. It's, they have all their little, look, you look in this verse, that's not about how beautiful the lady is. That's about Israel being granted their wish for a king or whatever they're trying to identify. They say it's about the history of Israel. You got another guy. This one is one of my favorites. You got a Jewish guy named Gershom, and he says... It's not a love poem. It's an allegory about knowledge and learning. Okay, so take your Bible, and I'll give you one example of what Gershom would like you to believe. Look at Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 5. Song of Solomon 4, 5 says... Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. To us, that sounds like graphic love poetry. Gershom says, no, 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 no. You missed it. You stupid people, ignorant people, missed it. He says, look, uh, fawns and a gazelle. Fawns and a gazelle. Gazelle are pretty quick. They're pretty fast. And I'm a mathematician, and I know that if you're a good mathematician, your mind is quick. It's fast. This is not talking about the anatomy of a woman. That's talking about how fast and how quick your mind needs to be if you want to be a good mathematician. There you go. And he does it through the whole book. 
everything in there, he says, it's really not about that. It's really about this. It's a book about knowledge and learning. Okay? Another explanation. There's a guy named Origen in the early church. He was a Christian guy. There's a guy named Jerome. And uh, Origen was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt. Jerome is the guy that wrote the Latin Vulgate, um, Latin translation of the Bible. And these guys, um, they thought it was much more spiritual if you never got married, if you remained celibate all your life. So you can imagine when guys who think you should not get married come to the Song of Solomon, they say, it can't be about that. We're not supposed to do that. That's not really what God made us to do. So they put their minds together and they say, it's about spiritual marriage. And uh, it's, it's just a weird thing that both of these guys had lots of women who liked to listen to them teach. And they were not married to any of them, but they sort of taught this spiritual marriage idea of, like, I don't know, dating or best friends or I don't know, understand it. It's weird to me. But they say, look, it's not about love poetry like you think it is. It's about a spiritual form of marriage where you don't touch anybody, you don't get married, you don't have sex, anything like that. So... Origin and Jerome. There you go. Spiritual marriage. Bernard of Clairvaux says, it is about the love that the Christian has for God. It's not about the physical stuff it seems like. It's about the love a Christian has for God. Get this. Bernard preached 86 sermons on the first two chapters of the Song of Solomon. Look at that. Just look at the first two chapters. 17 verses in the first chapter. 17 verses in the second chapter, and Bernard preached 86 sermons. You think we're going slow in Luke. You can't believe we're only in Luke 9. The guy preached for a year and a half on 34 verses. And what he told people is, it's not love poetry. It's really about the love that you ought to have for God. I know it sounds like love poetry, but it's not. You've got to understand what I'm teaching you, and I'm, I'm giving you the key here. So there's Bernard. A um, lot of Christian interpretations say it's not about any of that stuff. It's about Jesus in the church. We know that Jesus wasn't around when it was written, but it was sort of prophetic, and it's about Jesus and his love and his relationship for the church. Here's something that I think is interesting. You all know that a German guy named Gutenberg invented the printing press, right? Okay. Before that happened, if you look at all the handwritten, because there's no printing press, you look at all the handwritten copies of the Bible or books of the Bible or the Old Testament or the New Testament, guess which book was copied by hand more than any other book? Song of Solomon's, right? Song of Sol more than the book of Psalms, more than the book of Genesis, more than all these books, more than the book of Isaiah, the song, they're writing it over and over and over again because that's what people wanted to read and why are they so interested in it because they were fascinated who's going to give us the next best interpretation we've heard it means this oh no you say it means this oh no you say it means that oh no you say it means this it's the exact same thing you find today at the Christian bookstore if you go to the prophecy section and you find 8,000 books about the book of Revelation and they all mean something different and you say what all these people writing all these books and none of them agree. They're all crazy. And it's the exact same thing that people were doing 
with the Song of Solomon. So here you go. Two problems with the allegorical approach. Okay? Two big problems. Number one, it assumes that the plain meaning is somehow inadequate or evil. If you're going to interpret it allegorically, all of these guys who do that, they're saying it would not be fitting for there to be a book of love poems in the Bible. There's something missing here. There's something wrong here. They're not happy with that. So that's problem number one. Here's problem number two. This is the big one. It's totally arbitrary. Who's right? Is it Bernard that's right? Is it Origen that's right? Is it Gershom that's right? Is it this Jewish guy that's right? Is it that Catholic guy that's right? 8,000 interpretations. How in the world do you know which one could possibly be right? So, last time we met, we talked about hermeneutics, how to study your Bible. Let me just give you a little example of why hermeneutics matters, okay? One of the first rules of interpreting the Bible is you have to understand what kind of literature it is. Is it a story, like a parable? Is it uh, history, just recounting facts from, from the past? Is it some kind of poetry? Is it prophecy? You need to know what kind of writing it is. And when you know what kind of writing it is, you interpret it differently. So here's what I mean in a real-world example, okay? Everybody turn around and look at Sean Job. Sean, raise your hand, okay? That's Sean Job, if you don't know Sean. Sean's wife is Sarah, and I'm just picking on you tonight just because, okay? What's that? Yeah, because you're sitting by yourself, just to make it even worse for you, okay? Sean and Sarah. Imagine that Sean comes home from work, and his wife, Sarah, is not there, but she has left him a note on the kitchen counter, okay? And the note says, Sean, you melt my heart. Love, Sarah. Okay? So Sean comes home. His wife is not there to explain herself. He picks up this note and he reads it. Sean, you melt my heart, Sarah. And he sits down at the kitchen table and he thinks, wonder what that means. Melt my heart. Think, things that melt are hot. Hot. Hot things. Hot things. My wife is hot. My wife, I think my wife is hot, but she says she's hot. When you have a fever, you're hot. I think my wife has a fever. What do you, what do, you do when you have a fever? Well, maybe you write a note and you tell somebody, but you also ought to take some Tylenol. So maybe my wife needs some Tylenol. And I think I figured it out. I think what this note means is I'm supposed to go to Albertsons and buy some Tylenol for my wife. I'm going to Albertsons. And he comes home from Albertsons and he's got the Tylenol and he says, Honey, I did it. Here's your Tylenol. And she looks at him and says, You're an idiot. You break my heart. You grieve my heart right? That was not the point. That was a note expressing my love for you, okay? The flip side would be equally true. Sean comes home, note on the counter, Sean, go to Albertsons and buy Tylenol. Sean sits down and says, what do you think that means? Go to Albertsons and buy Tylenol. Why would you need Tylenol? Well, 
you use Tylenol when you have a fever. Does my wife have a fever? I think my wife has a fever. You know, when you have a fever, you feel hot. It just makes you feel hot. My, my wife is, is pr a pretty lady, but I, I don't think that's what she's talking about. I, I Tylenol. She, she has a fever. She's hot. When things are hot, they melt. Something, what is melt? Is my wife melting? No, my wife's not melting. Her, but what if her heart is melting? I know that maybe I, I think this is a love note. I think my wife just wrote me a love note and left it on the counter. It really doesn't mean go to Albertsons and buy Tylenol. What my wife is trying to say to me is that she, I just melt her heart. She just, she just melts because she loves me so much. And so his wife comes home and he says, honey, the love note was really great. And I've been working on one for you all day. And she says, that's great. Where's the Tylenol? And he says, what do you mean? The note about Tylenol. Oh, well, that really wasn't about Tylenol, was it? Yes, it was about Tylenol. Okay? You interpret a love note from your spouse differently than a grocery list. And if you treat them like they're not what they are, you are acting like a fool. And you've got all these people for so many centuries who come to this book, and it's clear what it is. It's so obvious. And they come to it and they say, well, it can't be that. It must be something else. And it's just as, as silly as what we just talked about. Let me talk to you about poetry just for a minute, okay? All of this really becomes clear when you realize that the Song of Solomon is Hebrew poetry in the form of a chiasm. Chiasm. And I'm going to explain to you what that means and why it matters, okay? Any of you like to write poetry? Nobody? Anybody like to read it? Justin does? Ah, very nice. So Justin knows all this stuff I'm about to tell you guys. The rest of you guys need to pay attention, okay? Uh, put the next slide up, Mr. Lucas. Okay, just some examples. There is couplet poetry, okay? And for our culture, couplet poetry means A and A, line one and two, go together, right? They probably rhyme. A, one, rhymes with A, two. And then the third line rhymes with the fourth line, right? And it's couples, two, two, two. So some poetry is like that. Some poetry is quatrain poetry, and... The letters can be in different order, but it's basically four lines that go together. And so maybe the first and the third rhyme together, and the second and the fourth rhyme together, uh, whatever. You get the idea. Maybe it's A-A-B-B, but four that all go together in a stanza. Okay. Then there's something, these are three of many, 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 but uh, terza rima, rima. I don't know how you say it, but it's kind of poetry. And the way it works is... The stanza is three lines, and so it goes ABA, next stanza, BCB, next stanza, CDC, next stanza, EDE, next stanza, EFE, I'm, I'm confused, but you get the idea, okay? It goes on like that, over and over and over again, and uh, if you have ever heard of Dante, who wrote The Inferno, he wrote the whole book like the one on the right, the whole thing, 
goes in those three lines back and forth, back and forth. You get the idea. Okay? The Hebrews, the Jewish people, they didn't like any of that nonsense. Okay? They had two kinds that were really their favorite. One they really liked is when each line, they could care less about rhyme, by the way. They didn't care if their poems rhymed. But they liked it a whole lot when the first line in a poem started with A, the second line started with B, the third line started with C, and it was acrostic, A, B, C. Of course, it's through the Hebrew alphabet, you understand. Here's the, the second kind that they really, really liked. It's called a chiasm, and here's how a chiasm works, okay? Mini version of a chiasm. You write six lines of poetry, okay? The first line and the sixth line are about the same topic. They go together. The second line and the second to last line are about the same topic. They go together. And you work your way down to the very middle of the chiasm. And the very middle is the most important part of the whole chiasm. Just as an example, you can look at John chapter 1, the first section in the Gospel of John. It's a chiasm. It works just like this, and you can work it down right to the very middle, which is about John 1, uh, 14, I think. So, Gospel of John does this, but the entire book of the Song of Solomon does this. And I brought my, my book in here, but you can't see this. So, I, I took a picture of it, and you can see it a little bit bigger. The whole book is a chiasm. The very first verse lines up with the very last verse. The second verses line up with the second to last verses. The third set of verses line up with the third to last verses. You see what I'm saying? Fourth to the fourth to last. All the way, this takes some work to do this, by the way. And they get all the way to the very middle, in the very middle of the book, the very middle of the chiasm is the most important part. And here's what it is in the Song of Solomon. Look at it. Song of Solomon 4, 16 to 5, 1. This is the very middle says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And here it is, the very middle of the chiasm. Eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love any commentator worth their salt knows that's the very middle of the book the very middle of the chiasm and it all leads up to that and then it all goes backwards after that and being drunk with love in this hebrew love poem is talking about i'm just going to be very blunt with you the physical act of consummating a marriage being drunk with love, the emotions you feel, the, the physical things you feel, the anticipation, all of it leads up to that one climatic moment, and that's the very middle of the book, right? This is a love poem. Really, I don't think it ought to surprise us that in a section of books about wisdom that God would put something in there about marriage. That's a pretty big part of life, that if God didn't give us wisdom on it, you sort of say, well, the Bible, I thought the Bible was supposed to speak to every aspect of human life. It doesn't really have a book devoted to that. It does, and it's the book of the Song of Solomon. Now, here's a disclaimer, okay? 
It is Hebrew love poetry. It was written thousands of years ago on the other side of the world by people whose lives were very, very different than ours. And so there is imagery and there is symbolic words used. And there are words that seem strange to us in love poetry. Okay, Let me give you some examples and you follow along. Look at chapter 1 verse 5. I am very dark but lovely. That's a contrast. I am very dark but I am lovely. And we would read that today in in our culture at least we would say well dark is good. We go to the tanning bed to get dark. You would we would say I'm very dark and I'm lovely because I'm very dark. She said I'm very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem like the tents of Kedar like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. We're like, what in the world? We want the sun to look on us so much, we pay money to get fried in an electric tanning bed. She's embarrassed that she's so dark. They didn't have tanning beds. If your skin was dark, it's because you worked outside doing manual labor. You weren't rich enough or privileged enough to live inside and let servants do that kind of stuff. What this lady is saying is, look, I'm a nobody. I'm just a low-class, working-class, blue-collar girl, and my skin is dark. It would be like us saying today, a lady saying, my hands are rough. I've worked in the oil patch all my life, and i got calluses all over my hands, right? And she's almost ashamed of this. So different context. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. How do you think this would go over today? The man says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You are like a horse. Sean, just to be clear in the illustration, don't go home and write that love poem for your wife. You look like a horse. But you go back and you say, okay, what is a symbol of power and prestige what is a symbol of wealth it's not a Lamborghini it's not a big stack of money it's not big fancy jewelry necessarily it's a beautiful animal these beautiful beasts that Pharaoh has in his army they're amazing to look at they're the most they don't have a Lamborghini to compare it to so they just look at the mare and they say that is an amazing beautiful creature and he says you're like that you're not like the mare that's out there munching on grain in the field you're like one of pharaoh's mares pulling a chariot you're the real deal okay back then it worked chapter 2 verse 17 this is the the lady talking to her fiance at this point until the day breathes and the shadows flee turn my beloved be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains again we don't really think to describe attractive people like stags or gazelles but in this culture at that time in their experiences this was one of the ways they could describe beauty here's one of my favorites and we could look at tons of them but look at chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 behold you are beautiful my love Behold, you are beautiful. That's a good start, right? Your eyes are like doves. That's a little weird. 
behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. It gets better. Your teeth, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Okay? Your hair is like goats. Probably not going to do it in 2015. But back then, for people who were agricultural, agricultural people, agrarian people, and they're looking off at the countryside and maybe the sun's setting and there's this green hill and the goats are coming down, it's a beautiful sight. For us, we can use different images. But for them, that was something that they looked at and was valuable to them, was beautiful to them. So he throws it in there. And then he says, your teeth are like ewes. They just got washed. And each of them has a twin. You know what he's saying there? You're not missing any teeth, honey. You got all your teeth. This one pairs up with that one. You got them both. And this one with that one. And it looks like you just cleaned them. They're just coming out of the river all clean and beautiful. Again, you put yourself in that culture, in that time, and uh, maybe it's not as bad as we think. I will tell you this too, okay? Sometimes you read through this book. It's obviously love poetry. Sometimes you read something in the book, and I'll just be honest with you, it doesn't make sense, okay, in the English translation. And I'm going to just tell you directly why it doesn't make sense. There are some things written in there that when they translated this book into English, the translators said, we can't write that. We, we can't write what that says. And so they translate it into something kind of close. <laughs> and when you read it, you think, that's really weird. And so sometimes you go back to a guy who knows Hebrew, and he says, okay, this verse right here, it says this. Let me give you the literal translation. And you read the literal translation, and you say, oh, wow, that really is graphic love poetry. And so you just need to be aware that there's some things like that in the book, okay? So all that aside, one last serious thing. There's a problem with the song. And the problem is that theology plays no role in the book directly, openly, right? One passing reference to God and that's it, okay? Um, Esther, I told you, does not mention God. But you can see God in every paragraph in the book of Esther. No question, no doubt about it. You can read through the songs and you get done and you say, that's just love poems. That's really weird. God doesn't seem to have anything to do with that. How does that tie into faith and God and our relationship with him? Here's how it fits. You have to read it in light of the whole Bible. You can't just take it out by itself. You read it in light of the the whole of scriptures, and you read it in light of Genesis chapter 2. And when you think about Genesis 2, God creates man and woman, and he creates marriage. The Song of Solomon is saying what God did way back there in Genesis 2 in the beginning is a really good thing. And yes, sin has twisted it and fouled it up and messed it up in a lot of different ways, but it is fundamentally a very good thing. So three ideas here at the very end that you need to to take away. Reading it in light of Genesis 2, it teaches that the ascetic approach 
to spirituality. I didn't even finish that sentence on the slide. Did I finish it on the outline? The ascetic approach to spirituality is not ideal. Okay? It is not ideal. Ascetic meaning uh, we are going to be monks. We're not going to marry. So, you can trace this back to Bernard and Jerome and, and uh, Origen and all these guys. In the modern day, here's the reality. I have family members, Catholic family members, who are somewhat proud that they have a pastor in the family. But they would be more proud if they had a priest in the family. Not just because they're Catholic, but because it's more serious to be a priest than a pastor because you're giving this up to follow God. And you give that up to follow God and it's just, it's better. It's more spiritual, it's more holy, it's more godly. And I'll just be honest, the book of Song of Solomon says, bull. No, it's not. Did you forget to read Genesis 2, that God made this in the beginning and that it's a good thing? And there's nothing bad about it. There's nothing gross about it. There's nothing immoral about it. Marriage, as God designed it to be, is a good thing. It's not like, well, if, you just, if you're just not holy enough to go that route, it's okay to go this route. But this would be much better. Baloney. The Song of Solomon says that the ascetic approach to spirituality is not ideal, is not better than marrying. Number two, the song teaches that heterosexual monogamy is the only proper place for sexual love. And I realize that Solomon really blew this later in life. But Solomon is not our standard the wisdom of God recorded in Scripture is the standard. And anybody who wrote down Scripture, any part of the Bible, blew it and didn't live up to what they wrote. Doesn't matter. Peter messed up. Paul messed up. Doesn't matter. The truth is the truth because God inspired these people to write it, and that's true of the song. And it teaches that heterosexual monogamy is the only proper place for sexual love. That's clear. And then number three, it teaches the value of romance and it stresses the necessity of nurturing love. Dignifies romance and stresses the necessity of nurturing love. And the reality is in this book, the, the people getting married and then the people who are married, they do woo each other and they do uh, engage in romantic things and they do have to work at it, right? This is something our world needs to hear very, very badly. Our world sort of thinks that love is just something that happens to you. You fall into it and you fall out of it. And when you fall out of it, you just sort of whatever. And the song teaches in lots of different ways in the book that, no, you got to work at it. Uh, you have to talk to each other. You have to nurture this. Romance is important. Your relationship is important. All of these things take work. So it makes sense when you read it in light of Genesis 2. And it fits in with the theology of the scriptures. So... Here's the last thing I'll say, just on a personal note. If you want to study the book, I would do one of two things. I would get a, a really good study Bible 
and uh, it can help you in some of the notes in the translation of things and some of the confusing things, the images when you read about goats and why are goats beautiful. It can maybe explain some of that stuff. Or get a commentary, and this is a commentary. This is, to me, the best one I've read. It's by a guy named Dwayne Garrett, and uh, Dr. Garrett was my Old Testament professor at seminary and uh, really, really good and honest and blunt, but very, very helpful. So if you want to study it, um, there are plenty of resources uh, to help you wrap your, your brain around what's going on there. So there you go, Song of Solomon. Next week, we are out of wisdom. We have all become wise over the last five Wednesday nights. And we move on to the major prophets. We'll look at the book of Isaiah and do our best to summarize a long and important book in our time together. So there you go. We're going to pray.